If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. This episode of Philosophy for Our Times was recorded live at the Institute of Art and Ideas annual festival, How the Light Gets In. Early bird tickets have just gone on sale for How the Light Gets In 2018. Join us next May to debate the most cutting-edge ideas of our time with the world's leading thinkers. For more information and tickets, see the festival website at howthelightgetsin.iai.tv. Discover more about power, status, sexuality and feminist philosophy at www.routledge.com forward slash philosophy. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts are assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Hello, everyone. Today we will be discussing feminism and female sexuality and the interplay between the two. The goal of feminism once seemed simple, equal rights for both sexes. Yet tabloid controversy is raging now. Beyonce, Gaga, Sheryl Sandberg and possibly even Kim Kardashian have claimed the label. Can female sexuality really be a vehicle for female power? And is feminism recast as female power, a desirable goal, or a threat to the original ideas of the movement. With me today to discuss this fascinating topic are Catherine Hakeem. Catherine is a sociologist and author who has developed a new theory of erotic capital, examining its power in society. She's currently a professorial research fellow at London think tank Civitas. Dune McKeekin, comedian and actor, Dune co-wrote and starred in the famous Channel 4 series, Smack the Pony, which has been labelled as everything from feminist comedy to girlycom. Uh, maybe Dune can clarify or, girly for us com. what exactly girlycom <laughs> is. Uh, and then on my left, Peter Tatchell. Peter Tatchell is an activist and human rights campaigner known for his work with LGBTI movements. Named a national hero by the Sunday Times... He is now the director of the Peter Tatchell Foundation. So, can female sexuality help the fight for female equality? Do. I'd like to start with a quote by uh, Rebecca West, who's a journalist, who says, I myself have never been able to find out precisely what feminism is. 
I only know that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat. <laughs> so, women are still making do in a world that's very hostile to their intelligence. So, strong, witty women are still a threat to men in power. So, women have to find other ways of advancing themselves because there are still so few opportunities to thrive and to express ourselves unashamedly that we rely on our sexuality as a way of being seen and heard. We're deflated by the lack of opportunity and impossible pictures of perfection, as Jane Austen said so many years ago. As you know, pictures of perfection make me sick and wicked. Well, I wonder what she would make of the prevalence of circles of shame in our magazine um, that shame women's bodies for not being perfect, baggy knees, thread veins, wonky toes. So our sexuality has been grossly abused, hijacked, airbrushed, pornographied, rape is entertainment, told what to wear at work, that we've got very far away from what our real sexuality is. So we're constantly deflated by seeing ourselves in another demeaning role on TV or film or on a mortuary slab, over-sexualised, yet another gratuitous naked shot. So we don't see many penises on television. Um, I flagged that up recently on a sitcom uh, comedy that I did, and I was told that cocks were too expensive. But, uh, <laughs> but however, tits and muff quite cheap, apparently. So <laughs> I've heard a quote that the third wave of feminism is just the second wave with lip gloss, but if we dress too sexily, we're whores, sluts, cougars, slags. So as Lady Gaga said, the last thing a young woman needs is another picture of a pop star covered in grease, writhing in sand and touching herself. So, role models, not... not many that my 11-year-old could mention. Rihanna is too averse. Beyonce calls women bitches. Lady Gaga self-harms. Kim Kardashian says her vagina is nearly perfect. Um, and these young girls feel a pressure to be a stereotype, to not do anything wrong, and you'll be judged if you don't conform. Um, if you see a Photoshop picture, you try and copy it. One of three huge pictures that weren't Photoshopped recently were three nude pictures of Vivian Westwood at the ICA, age 68, totally naked. She looks beautiful, comfortable, and that as a woman using sexuality, I think, to be a very empowering and marvellous exhibition. I'm unashamed and happy with her body. We need women to rule break without subservience and shame as regards to our sexuality. Not plastic surgery, not Prozac, not over-domesticated not subservient, but trailblazers who crash through glass ceilings using their minds as well as their bodies. So we do need a bit of a feminist sat-nav saying, turn around, you have gone wrong. <laughs> you have gone wrong. Um, and if our sexuality can, can be redefined as more wild, free, individual, unabashed and joyful, as opposed to packaged, constricted, airbrushed, degraded and undervalued, then it will serve to celebrate a movement that will only empower men and women. Thank you. Catherine, can female sexuality play a key role in advancing the fight for equality? Physical and social attractiveness has social and economic value and is a key element in what, in the 21st century, gets people into the very highest levels. Yes, you need qualifications. Yes, you need intelligence, ability, and all the rest of it. But in our today's very competitive world, and in global industries and global organizations, they're very competitive, you need something extra that gives you the edge. And what gives you the edge in the biggest organizations is erotic capital. It's the ability to present yourself well, and that means physical and social, to dress well, to have good manners, and also to make yourself as physically attractive as possible. Men know this. Men do it. The people who run cosmetic surgery clinics report that in times of recession, there's a massive upsurge in men going in 
to get the facelifts and other bits and pieces to make themselves look more youthful so that when they're going to their next job interview, they'll, they'll have the edge and get the job in times of uh, economic recession when the competition gets even greater. And yet women have these anxieties, which we've just heard described, about whether they should use cosmetic surgery or not. Men do it and get on with it and get the job and get the money and have the power. Women have to recognize that erotic capital has social and economic value, and that's the main argument of my book. Men know it. Men have been using it. They don't tell women. They don't want women to know. And so the key element of patriarchy today in the 21st century is men telling women that attractiveness is shallow, superficial, valueless, degrading, objectifying. Oh, you really don't want to go down that route, dearie. People who are attractive, who have erotic capital, earn on average 15% more. But it's 17% more for men and 12% more for women. People like Kim Kardashian, I take my hat off to her, she's recognized that actually, if you're attractive, you can earn a hell of a lot more. You can monetize that in a very big way. When David Beckham poses in underwear on huge posters in the street, we don't go around criticizing him or fretting that he's being degraded or objectified. He's made more money, I understand, from being a model in those sorts of adverts than he's made from his profession as a footballer. At the top end, erotic capital can bring absolutely massive returns. So the real argument here is that those women who are exploiting what you might call their sexuality, but is actually their erotic capital, their ability to present well, to dress well, to choose clothes that flatter, to choose hairstyles that flatter. It's not just physical beauty, it's more than that. Women who are able to exploit that do get a greater power. So the problem is not that erotic capital doesn't have value, the problem is that women are so dumb that they've accepted the patriarchal message that they should never use it. Uh, Peter, it would be fascinating to know what role you think an embrace of sexuality can help in a fight for equality and equal rights. First of all, I'd like to say that I'm very honoured to be the token male on this esteemed platform. <laughs> when we're talking about feminism... There's no one feminism. There are many different feminisms according to the particular circumstances of individual women. As we know, feminism can operate in many different ways and achieve many different results. Political, economic, cultural and personal, including sexuality, but not sexuality alone. And I think all these different ways in which feminism seeks to drive women's uh, empowerment forward are good and positive. They're all valid, they all contribute. Um, but to me, the idea that Beyonce and Lady Gaga and others are the cutting edge and be all and end all of new wave feminism, to me, is simply not credible. Um, sexuality is certainly part of the feminist agenda. Um, all the more so because sexual oppression has been a core part of women's underachievement, and second-class status in society. Um, so overcoming the sexual oppression that women have faced, asserting their sexuality, winning sexual rights, is definitely part of the process of 
women's emancipation. I'd also say that in favor of people like Beyonce, Kim Kardashian, and so on, I guess it's true that their feminist sexuality um, does often reach parts of society, young girls in particular maybe, who are not accessible or don't find access to traditional feminism, to the Kate Millets, Betty Frydens uh, of the world. So maybe that their style of feminism, of girl power, of women's assertive sexuality, maybe that has an appeal and an accessibility that traditional feminism doesn't have. So that's perhaps a positive thing. You know, if young girls aren't going to be turned on by Simone de Beauvoir, but they're turned on by Lady Gaga and her affirmation of female power, then that surely is a good thing, but not a sufficient thing. I think that's a very important distinction. It's, it's true that still there are a whole raft of core issues that no amount of female sexuality can surmount. The core traditional issues that have inspired and motivated much of feminism in the last hundred years. Reproductive rights, equal pay, affordable childcare, action on women-specific diseases like cervical and breast cancer. Those core issues are still there. They still need addressing, and no amount of you know, these affirmative uh, feminist pop stars can itself or by themselves change that. I also think the question has a very Eurocentric or Western perspective to it, because this issue of female sexuality and pop stars is pretty much meaningless to the vast majority of women in the world today, many of whom are living in countries where even the basics like food, shelter, and clean water are simply non-existent. And for hundreds of millions of women and young girls who have to tramp miles every day to get water, often contaminated water, you know, these issues are just so beyond and outside their experience and their needs. And I think we need to remember that for many hundreds of millions of women around the world, the issues are honor killing, female genital mutilation, death in childbirth, forced marriage, and child prostitution. So female sexuality and its assertion has a role to play, but it's a small fragment of a much bigger, wider picture. Dean, to come back to you, so far we seem to have talked about this celebrity feminism as potentially a negative, pop stars hitching themselves to a populist bandwagon potentially to further their own brands. Is that a position that you agree with or do you think that in entering popular culture mainstream is that is still a positive for the feminist movement? I think as Peter said, if it's going to make a young girl feel good and positive about herself if she hasn't read her Andrew Dworkin, then that's a good thing if she's going to feel empowered by Beyoncé uh, dancing, but I just think someone like Cara Delevingne standing on the sort of a catwalk going, I'm a feminist, you know, that was a kind of like a fashion show. I'm a feminist, I'm a feminist with a, with a big loud hailer. It, it came in as a fashion thing. That's not a terrible thing, but it has degraded some of the very, very key and important issues we were talking about. You were talking about, about women's state around the world, but 
I just think it's been over-sexualised as well. I think the way that the women are project projecting themselves. So Kim Kardashian, her talking about her vagina, is that empowering? I don't know. Sort of saying it's almost perfect because she's trying to be a model of perfection a bit like a porn star would be. She would have labial surgery to make herself look more perfect. I don't think that is very feminist. Um, so I think it can be degraded and I think the, the message is, is, is very, very murky. Catherine, do you think feminism sort of becoming populist is necessarily a negative. In fact, uh, just to go back to your point about Kim and her tendency to derobe, in fact, Harriet Harman has recently come out and proclaimed Kim Kardashian as a symbol of female empowerment. Where do you stand on that, Catherine? Well, clearly Harriet Harman has got it right. In modern society, the fact is that patriarchal men have persuaded women and men that Erotic capital has no value, and therefore you should be ashamed of ever using it. Intelligent women use it. Intelligent men use it. People who go to university and graduate with a degree and have potential high earnings, they can uh, you know, pers persuade themselves they don't need to be attractive. They can dress like a slob if they want um, because they've got the brains. But you're forgetting the two-thirds of people who don't go to university. You're forgetting the 30% of people who leave school with no qualifications of any value. And people like David Beckham are going to be making their way in the world with whatever other talents and abilities they have. And I take my hat off to anyone who uses their abilities, whatever they are, to good effect, to make money for themselves and therefore lead a good life. So who are we to... Uh, turn our nose up and be terribly superior about people like that. University education isn't the only way to get ahead. Kim Kardashian is showing that. But isn't, isn't the danger that you're setting up like a new model of the princess to which young girls aspire to, but most will never ever be able to achieve? Well, what about the gay community? Have you forgotten? The research on the gay community shows that erotic capital in the gay community is even more valuable than for women in the heterosexual community. If you're an ugly gay man, you are getting nowhere in the sex clubs and the bars. <laughs> if you're a handsome gay man, you have the choice of all the partners you want because in the gay community, erotic capital being attractive, physically attractive, you don't even have to have terribly good social manners and grace and skills. Uh, is absolutely paramount. The uh, value of erotic capital, to my surprise, is displayed even more emphatically in the gay community than in the heterosexual community. So it, all I'm saying is women have to learn and celebrities are models, role models, because they've already understood and they're doing it. Just because they've understood and they're doing it doesn't make it right and doesn't make it fair. <laughs> And I, would say, I agree with what you say about the gay community, and I think that's a weakness, that's a flaw, not something to celebrate, because it emphasizes shallowness over substance. Here we are. Two, two, two victims of the male patriarchal ideology. I feel sorry for you both. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. 
Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Peter, I mean, do you think that part of the problem is that female sexuality is now becoming associated with feminism and sexual empowerment among women? Do you think maybe the focus of celebrity feminists should shift to the issues that you raise, such as FGM and issues in the, in the developing world? And if so, how should we go about uh, sparking that off? Well, it can be both. And, you know, I accept that, to some degree, in some areas, for some people, for some women, sexual empowerment is a very important advance, given the fact that they've been sexually disempowered for so long. So for young girls to assert their sexuality and not simply to be, see themselves as recipients or receptacles for men, that's a big, important advance. But I don't think itself is sufficient. And I think the danger is that you you reduce human relations to looks, appearances, and sex, ignoring you know, emotions, feelings, intelligence, and so on. And I know that that's not what you're saying, but that is part of the danger of what you're saying, where it could lead. I'm glad that you notice it's not what I'm saying. I have a doctorate. I have never ignored intellectual development. No. I have never recommended any of my students at the London School of Economics to stop bothering to get a degree. I am simply saying, when you go to an interview, your degree isn't going to be enough. You need an edge. You have to present well. That's all I'm saying. As well. Not instead, as well. Uh, Dune, do you think celebrity feminism could have more value if the focus was shifted onto, onto different issues? I just think we need to have some better role models that aren't just about women being sexual creatures. In the 80s, when we were fight, doing, going on Reclaim the Night and Women Against Violence Against Women, there was a particular look that was it, was... it was about not shaving your legs, it was about not wearing makeup, and it was very militantly against being feminine. There was a way that we had to look that felt that if you were going to be... If you were political, you weren't allowed to use somehow be sexual. I think that's completely changed now, which is great. Women can go, look at me, look at my body, look at my nearly perfect vagina, everyone on the, uh, the selfie. That's, that's liberating. I agree that we need to reclaim that sexuality and be very, very open and proud with it. We need to reclaim nudity for a start from being pornography as opposed to erotic something beautiful and wonderful and, and empowering. I just think there are not enough good, strong sexual women out there having their stories heard, being role models. Unfortunately, all we have is a very small handful of, of women making a lot of money out of their nearly perfect vaginas, as opposed to then going on and speaking about their sisters. So it's a very narcissistic, very self-fulfilling. It's about money. It's about how many followers you have. I don't think it's necessarily thinking of other women along the way. I think it's very self-focused. Exactly that kind of attitude is what has kept women down at the bottom all these years. I really, really find it very disappointing 
that you can't break out of the idea that I should be morally superior uh, rather than exploit any talents that I've got. And men have been exploiting any talents, any abilities that they have got for centuries uh, without any moral inhibitions whatsoever. And women have constantly trapped themselves in this victimhood mentality that says, oh, I'd better be a good girl before I'm anything else. I mean, Catherine, do you think with this sort of fragmentation and evolution of feminism and different strands of feminism, lipstick feminists, if you like, more militant feminists, black feminists, etc., is the concept of the sisterhood still valid? I'm not sure that it's still valid in 21st century Europe because I think that in Europe, to a very large extent, we have got a situation of economic and political equality, and uh, particularly in Britain and the United States, the pay gap has been completely explained and uh, is not important anymore. Uh, the European Commission... The European Commission still puts out figures that are uh, widely advertised because they've got the money for the publicity and the media work, which are misleading. But because of that, I think the idea of feminism has to be renewed. And it's really um, today, to my mind, simply a focus on those things that affect women more than men. Can I, can I just pick you up on that? I mean... I accept there have been huge strides in women's advancement over the last 50 years. Huge, huge strides. But to suggest that the battle is over is absurd. I mean, the, the, the proportion of women in the British Parliament is one of the lowest in the world. You know, the number of men in the House of Commons today is greater than all the women ever elected to the House of Commons in the entire period that women were able to stand for Parliament. So there, just on that issue alone, there is huge, huge work still to be done. That's because you're assuming that 50-50 in Parliament is somehow a most important measure, and I would say that isn't. Well, I'm, I'm not necessarily 50-50, but for heaven's sake, close the gap. Not 79-21. Not, not <laughs> Yeah, I'm just simply saying you have to make an argument as to why that is an appropriate in key measure as opposed to the pay gap, for example, which affects everybody on a daily basis. Uh, Catherine, I saw a response from the audience when you said the pay gap was irrelevant. I mean, obviously, the pay gap in this country is still 19%. So maybe you could clarify for us what you mean when you say it's relevant. Well, it's not 19%. It's 19% on the European Commission measure and because they don't have the data and also because they're lazy and also because they want to exaggerate it, the way they go about measuring it is to compare all men with all women in, who are, have any job of any kind, even one hour a week. And that's not the way the K-gap has normally, traditionally, for the last 50 years been calculated, which is you compare full-time earnings of men and full-time earnings of women. And on that measure it is below 10% in Britain. Uh, and below 10%, you can explain the pay gap as being due to different kinds of jobs because you're comparing all full-time men with all full-time women, and the 10% can be very easily explained. Men are more likely to be trade union members. 
Men are more likely to travel long distance into city centers for jobs rather than work locally. Men choose different occupations and they almost always gravitate to the most high paying occupations. Men seek promotion into more higher paid jobs simply because they're higher paid, even if they don't particularly like the work. Men are more likely to take on risky jobs that have a pay, pay, pay premium for risk, such as deep sea diving, which as far as I know, no women do at all. And it just goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And that men are more likely to work very long hours and therefore uh, get either overtime or bonuses or whatever. Men are more likely to be entrepreneurs, self-employed, and work long hours and therefore earn more as a result, and so on and so on. Just myriad explanations. Uh, when people compare like with like in exactly the same job in Britain and America, there's no pay gap. It's just that most of the comparisons are all men in full-time jobs, all women in full-time jobs. And of course, there are lots of differences between those two groups. But isn't also, I accept a lot of the explanations you've given, but also isn't part of the equation the lack of affordable childcare? No. No? I'm sorry. <laughs> if it was... If there was affordable childcare, more women would aim for higher right, jobs, right, 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 would travel right. longer distances. Okay. Let's look at Sweden. Let's look at Sweden. Sweden is the promised land, says the European Commission. Sweden is utopia. Sweden is heaven on earth for women. They have equality. They have a childcare that they don't pay for or is affordable. And everybody is very happy. And what is the pay gap in Sweden? Please tell us. What it is, is the European Union average. 17% in Sweden. The promised land. Okay, um, I was going to move it on to Peter. Uh, I would like to move it on to the audience. I'd like to hear some questions from the audience, yeah. if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Uh, can I take a question? Yeah. You used the example of cosmetic surgery, and you said like, men are at ease with, with this. Men just go get on with it, and they persuaded women that this is um, not in their interests. Well, I've just written a book on genes and gender, and one of the chapters looks at adornments. So I had to look at the statistics on this. It's true that men have increased the amount they spend on cosmetic surgery from a very low base, but still the relative figures are 8% for men and 92% for women. So the, the, the fact that men have increased it is still from a very low base. So why is there that, that gap? I also looked at the figures for the spending um, in the United States um, on beautification, however you want to define that more generally, um, and the figures were 88% for women and 12% and um, for men. So even if men are increasing their, their spending, why is there that, that, that gap? And you went on to say, you went on to use the example um, of erotic capital used by people um, who are standing for political positions, and you said they get 15% more benefit um, when they, they give attention to, to this area, they're more attractive. So we're looking then at Bernie Sanders. Are we we're looking at Jeremy Corbyn? Very high on erotic capital. And my point, my my, my point there is is they they're doing very well in the area without what we would normally define as erotic capital. Would any women politician get away with that? And I think we know the answer to to that question. And we need to ask why. It's not genetic. Um, it's the results of the way people are raised, of the way the perceptions that society has on women's beauty and on men's beauty and the perceptions that, that we have more generally. I'm going to go to Zoom on that one.
<clears throat> yes, I mean, younger and younger and younger girls are taking knives to their faces, and, it's a, it's, and needles, uh, to an unprecedented degree of... Um, the surgeries are just full of younger and younger girls thinking they aren't perfect. So I think this whole thing about the, the whole circles of shame that, that we have are stopping women being able to exploit their erotic capital because they, they just feel that what's, they can't even begin to compete unless they do look better. So it's, become, it's, it's years of culture, it's the advertising we have around us, it's the makeup industry, it's, it's a huge machine it, 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 it's almost like the predator, just going to, to a woman to look at herself without cringing is a, is a major achievement. And that's a terrible thing to say, that, that, you are, that we're ashamed of how we look. Lady at the back. I would just like to point out the cases that we see regularly of high-flying women, usually in the shame banking industry, so maybe it's their own fault, but high-flying women who are taking cases to tribunals, women who are wearing six-inch heels, doing everything to use the erotic capital, getting promoted, and then being sexually harassed in the boardroom. I mean, we can all think of these cases. They come up regularly. Fortunately, nowadays, they manage to get a nice big compensation. But I think your whole thing is a digression. It's a, it's a sideline from the real battles that have nowhere near been won. Forty years, here I go, I've been involved in feminism. Initiative after initiative, girls into science and technology, supporting women in manual trades, initiative after initiative, and we're farting about with erotic capital, as if that's <laughs> important. Uh, so what is your question, actually? <laughs> <laughs> I am a really good feminist because I'm like a man and I just make statements. <laughs> yeah, she's really annoying. You, I like her. Are you sure you don't want to get up on, on stage and join the panel? <laughs> Lady at the back. So, Catherine, you talk about how subconsciously people favour um, people who are deemed more attractive and that we should make the most of our erotic capital on this basis. Um, subconsciously, uh, people discriminate in all sorts of ways. So unconscious bias means that we discriminate against people who are a different skin colour from ourselves, or possibly a different sex from ourselves. Um, and we can call that out and say, OK, it's subconscious, but we need to call it into consciousness and say that we shouldn't be kind of exploiting that um, bias that we have. So why is it different then for the, this kind of beauty bias that we have, especially as those beauty norms are becoming more homogenous, they're becoming more globalised, um, they're encouraging uh, women in, uh, who don't fit that kind of stereotypical white, light-skinned norm to move towards skin-lightening products, etc., to be deemed more attractive, because there's all those other kind of classed, raced, gendered biases that sit under the surface of that. So I think it's really worrying to say that we should just kind of live up to that bias that we have. Just because we have the bias, it's not right that we uh, exploit it. Yeah. What, what, what I find absolutely astonishing is that people who make that sort of argument think it's completely fair, absolutely, totally fair, that we're completely biased 
in favour of people who happen to have got qualifications and biased against people who happen not to. A lot of the people who don't go into higher education are perfectly talented, able people. But isn't that bias usually based upon evidence, upon qualifications, experience and skills, rather than the way a person looks, which doesn't actually, in most cases, have any impact on their ability to do a job? I'm glad you raised that, because that's the mistake you're making. The research evidence is that people who are attractive are more productive in any job, except for jobs where it's a man with a machine, because there's not much of a relationship between a man and a machine. But in most jobs these days, there's relationships between you, the worker, and other workers, and managers, and customers, and clients, and 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 colleagues all over the place, so relationships matter today. This lady's got the microphone. I I just wanted to pick you up on a point where you said that the young people of today feel more equal and don't see this as an issue. I think you're totally misguided in that. The young people, particularly the young girls at the moment, are self-harming in a way that we've... uh, as an epidemic that we've never had before. They are sexualized to a point where they feel under pressure to share naked images of themselves on their mobile phones that then become property of the general school playground. I'm talking 13, 12-year-old girls that are feeling pressurized to put pictures of their naked bodies onto a phone for a boy that then gets shared around. They become intensely bullied. There is greater fear of violence on young girls now that's prevalent. To say that they feel equal to their male um, peers is just missing the issue completely. And this issue with power and status that you're talking about, should we not just appreciate that this sexualization is doing all of us great harm and actually by allowing your sexuality and this thing you're talking about, this erotic capital, to be celebrated in society is leading into a really shallow place where I don't want my kids to grow up. I'm actually going to ask Dune to respond to that one. Well, I think it's... I I absolutely am behind you on that. I have an 11-year-old girl who's already come a cropper with certain things around those issues. And my eldest daughter, who's 21, we've been through all that. When she was 15, it was Rihanna, and it was very much over-sexualised. But where is the way forward for women and their sexuality? For girls? So how do men become part of that? Men have to take responsibility for violence against women in this culture, much more than they do. And women have to... Find ways where they, we, need to, we need to redefine our sexuality. I think we, there is erotic capital in a woman looking exactly how she wants to look, but bursting full of ideas and feeling confident. We're so unconfident in our lives. It's shocking. And the younger now, the younger girls are less and less confident because they're so fearful of what's going on, which is this gross over-sexualization of our, of our young people, of our, of our young girls. I'm afraid uh, we're going to have to wrap up this very engaging and uh, involved uh, discussion. I feel like everyone's got very uh, strong opinions. Uh, I'd like you to uh, join with me in thanking our fantastic panel. (laughs) 
Discover more about power, status, sexuality, and feminist philosophy at www.routledge.com forward slash philosophy. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag status and sexuality. And don't forget, this episode was recorded live at our annual Ideas Festival, How the Light Gets In. To learn more and for tickets, please visit howthelightgetsin.iai.tv.